You've heard the phrase, find a penny, pick it up, and all day long you'll have good luck. Or you have looked for a four-leaf clover and found one, and perhaps you felt like you had good luck. I'm a baseball fan, and the Nationals are still the world champions. And one saying that one of the announcers has, if things are going really well, we're, we're on a comeback run, he says, nobody change seats. Same seats, everybody. If things are going really badly, he says other things. Everybody change seats, move around. Thinking that there's some impact with these matters of luck. Well, what if a black cat crosses your path? What if you accidentally walk under a ladder or break a mirror or spill salt? Or what if all these things happen on the same day on Friday the 13th? Then you're really in trouble. Or what if you fail? This is maybe old, old, older school. Maybe some of you don't know this. What if you fail to respond to a chain letter <laughs> that threatens you're going to have terrible luck the rest of your life. If that was true, I would have the worst luck of all because don't send me your chain letter. I'm not passing that thing on. Well, in all these things, we may have grown up with some of these ideas, and I have heard of people having some really strange ones that I've never heard of. If you have some of those, like from your childhood, I'd love to hear about those as well. But we recognize there's no such thing as bad luck or good luck. These are superstitions. They are fake. They're, they're worthless. They are not true. And really, you, we would have to consider, well, if we believe that luck is a thing, that bad luck is a thing, what are the powers behind what it is that gives the four-leaf clover luck? What is the power that you're suggesting that gives you fortune? Really, if, if we say we believe in these things, we are, in a sense, denying the sovereignty and omnipotence of God. We're denying that He is in control of all things, that He Himself is God Almighty. But while these things are untrue, I think that they perhaps key in on an inherent understanding that there are such things as blessings and curses that there are blessings and curses, that there is, in fact, a true curse, which every one of us would do well to avoid and do everything that we can to avoid. It is the curse of God. The curse of God is true. It is real. It's something that many in our culture no longer believe in. Judgment and hell and the wrath of God, and yet our scripture for today shows us that this is a reality, that this is something that is true and it is something to be feared. The truth of our scripture is that Jesus himself became a curse for us so that we could be redeemed from the curse and receive the promises of God. This morning, as we look through this passage, I just want us to consider those two ideas, the curse and the promise. 
and I'm cheating a little bit because I'll have two points under the curse, but the curse and the promise. First, in verses 10 through 14, consider the curse. And first, in verses 10 through 12, the curse of the law triers. The curse of the law triers. Paul says, For as many as rely on the law are under a curse. And the, the literal rendering of this is, as many are as of the law. So those anybody and everybody who is of the law, they are under a curse. And it is speaking, translation, I think gets it right, reliance upon the law for attaining your righteousness, for having a right standing before God, actually has the reverse effect. It puts you under a curse, the curse of God. The demand of the law is this, is, is a quotation here from the Old Testament. The demand of the law is that you abide in it, that you abide by all things written in the law, that you remain living in obedience to all the law and do all those things that it says. This is why those who are of the law or those who rely on the law are under a curse. Because the law demands that you do it all, all the time, and that you do it perfectly, without any mistakes, without any sin. The curse of God here refers not to some magical curse as we might consider it, but I think it's right that we would see this as contrasted with justification. This is what Paul's been talking about throughout the letter of Galatians so far. This curse, then, is contrasted with justification. Remember we said justification is God's pronouncement, His declaration upon a person that you are righteous in my sight. And that comes about through faith in Jesus Christ. So this curse then is a sort of pronouncement of doom, of judgment, of condemnation on any who rely upon the law. Calvin says, the sentence of the law is that all who have transgressed any part of the law are cursed. So perhaps we have some Star Wars fans here, and in one of the in the original one, I can't remember the name of it, but Yoda is training Luke Skywalker to become a Jedi, and he's having a hard time with it. He's not keeping up, he's not able to do what Yoda wants him to do. And so Yoda encourages him again, and Luke Skywalker turns back to Yoda and says, all right, I'll try. And you know what Yoda says. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. There's no trying here. You either do it or you don't. Likewise, to the law, you might say, I will give it my best shot. I will try my best to do everything that I can to remain in obedience to every aspect of the law. I will try my hardest. I will try day in and day out. And to that, the law says, try not. Do or do not. Either do it or you don't. There's no in-between. Either you keep it perfectly or you have failed to keep all of it completely. If you keep all the law every single aspect of it, and you commit murder, are you a lawbreaker? 
If you keep every aspect of the law, every jot and tittle, and yet you steal, are you a law keeper or a law breaker? You might be a law trier, but you're not a law keeper. You are a lawbreaker. If you keep every command of the law of God from start to finish, and yet you fail to perfectly honor your father and your mother, are you a law keeper or a lawbreaker? The truth of the scripture and the truth of this passage tells us every single one of us are lawbreakers. But it's not even that we've kept every part of the law, we just failed in one little bit. It turns out we have failed over and over and over again, and the things that we did right that appear obedient to the law, inwardly it was all about us. It was not done by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only have we committed sins of commission, we have omitted loving our neighbor as we have loved ourselves. We have not done the things we ought to have done, and that too makes us law breakers. And because of this, all of us, by nature, all humans are under a curse, under the curse of God. I remember as a teenager being on a boat with my dad and my brother and another friend, and we were out in the middle of the lake, far from any ramp, and all of a sudden a thunderstorm came up out of nowhere, and we thought we were going to die or get seriously hurt. We were huddling under while my dad was driving the boat as fast as he could to the ramp, and the rain was pelting us. It felt like rocks hitting us, and lightning was striking all around, and we just felt oppressed. We felt like we were under a curse. We felt like at any moment our boat was going to be struck and we were going to be hurt badly. You've probably been caught in a storm in a similar way. And this is what we can consider as the wrath of God, which is covering over sinners and threatening to do them harm, threatening to bring them under condemnation, threatening to kill them because of our sins against God. This is the curse of God, the the storm of God's wrath, which threatens everyone who has sinned against him, who has not obeyed the perfect law. And this demonstrates, while we might think it says something bad about God, it demonstrates the majesty of God. It demonstrates the greatness of God. It demonstrates the purity of God. It demonstrates the perfection of God. It demonstrates the righteousness of God and that no other creature in all creation can match His glory. The curse is upon all law triers because they are law breakers. But consider in verses 13 and 14 the curse of the law keeper. <coughs> In light of what we just heard, that those who don't keep every part of the law are under the curse, we expect the reverse to be true also. That if there is a person who could keep the law perfectly, who could do everything outwardly 
perfectly in obedience to the law and also inwardly with right motives and faith in the Father, then he or she would be perfectly blessed. Right? Stands to reason. What do we make then of Jesus' perfections? That he lived every day in obedience to the Father with perfect obedience to the law of God, keeping every jot and tittle, doing everything that it demanded of him, not being a law trier, but being an actual law keeper. But we see here that this law keeper endures a curse himself. (coughs) What does the scripture say? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written from Deuteronomy 21-23, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. These are criminals who are hung on a tree and left to rot. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse that we all deserve, the curse that we all earned by our unrighteousness and by our sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, standing over us, as it were, between us and the curse of God. And what does it say are the results of this law keeper being cursed by God? First, we receive the redemption from the curse of the law. We are rescued from under the curse of the law. What we have deserved, what we have earned, will no longer fall upon our heads because it has fallen upon the head of Jesus Christ, the law keeper. Second, we receive the blessing of Abraham. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We receive the redemption from the curse of the law. We receive the blessing of Abraham through Christ. We receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit which was promised from the prophets that God would come and make his home within us and calls us to walk in his ways. So then as we consider that thunderstorm that I was in as a teenager. We were trying to get out of it as quickly as we can. We were seeking shelter, something to come between us and the raging storm. And for all who are of the law, the storm strikes directly upon them. No filter, no shelter, nothing. But for all who come to God in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes the shield. Jesus becomes the shelter to which we run. The storm of God's wrath falls upon Him. The storm of God's anger, of His righteousness against sin, comes upon Him, and we, were, we are rescued from His judgment. A.T. Robertson said, Christ became a curse for us, over us, so between us, and the overhanging curse which fell on Him instead of us. Thus He bought us out, and we are free from the curse which He took on Himself. And this speaks to the greatness of Christ's sacrifice for sinners. His substitution for unworthy sinners. (coughs) 
And this is why Paul, to the Galatians, to the Corinthians, makes it his aim, makes it his life, makes it his ministry to preach Christ crucified for sinners. As he said earlier in this chapter, was not Christ placarded before you, portrayed before you as crucified? This is what Paul seeks to know among everybody that he knows. Christ crucified for sinners. This is his mission. This is his message. This is what he is eager to speak day in and day out. And brothers and sisters, we ought to have that same eagerness to bring the crucified Christ to bear on the lives of our neighbors, of our co-workers, of our friends. Really so that we, we want to get to know more people to befriend them so that we not, might not only show them the love of Christ, but we might show the love of Christ as Christ crucified for sinners. That they might know Him, that they might know the power of the cross, that they too might delight in Christ. This demonstrates to the mercy and the grace and the favor of God in providing a sacrifice. He is demonstrated as judge and king and as righteous in all his perfections, and yet here he has mercy on those who are undeserving. He displays his grace and favor for those who are unworthy by providing a sacrifice for sinners. And brothers and sisters, this should cause us to worship God in spirit and in truth. When we sing together, it's not just words coming out of our mouths. These truths ought to resonate within us, welling up within us, that we would worship God from the spirit, from the heart, that we would sing out in gratitude, He has rescued me. He has redeemed me from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for me. And it ought to result in great gratefulness for our lives, for all the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Do you know what we did when we finally got out of the storm? We were soaked through and through. We found a gas station. The storm cleared out, and then we laughed. <laughs> we laughed. We joked around. And we said, I, could you believe what we were rescued from? Can you believe what we escaped? We were surely in danger, and yet... Now we are free. And in the same way, when we have experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we laugh with rejoicing. We have been freed from the curse of the law. We have been redeemed. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is within you. Rejoice. Be grateful for Jesus Christ has given you His grace. Consider not only the curse, but also the promise in verses 15 through 18. Now, really, in many ways, we've already seen the promise. This was the promise that was given to Abraham that through the nations, that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. Paul says that he was wanting to give a human example in verse 15. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. This is just the idea that we have in common society. You don't renege on your promises, on your agreements. <clears throat> if you make an agreement, if you make a promise, you stick by it. This is uh, playground rule number one. No take-backs. 
right? If you traded your Mark McGuire rookie card for a Daryl Strawberry card, you got a raw deal, but no take backs. You can't take it back. You made an agreement. If you give something away and you promise to give it away, you give it with no strings attached. You don't come back and say, oh, I need that back. Right, kids, you've experienced this probably. Adults, you've experienced it as well. Not only as kids, but probably as adults too. No strings attached. An agreement is agreement. A promise is a promise. And this promise, Paul says, was given to Abraham and to his offspring. And he makes an interesting argument. He says, and it's talking about a singular offspring, not all of his offsprings, but a singular particular offspring. Who is this offspring? He answers it for us pretty quickly. Who is Christ? So Paul is saying in the promises of God in the Old Testament, as God promised to Abraham that he would give this to his offspring, he was speaking his promise to Abraham and to Christ, Abraham's offspring. He further goes on, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This promise is that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Through the offspring, who is Christ, all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, people from every tongue, tribe, people and nation, would have the favor of God, the blessing of God, only as they sought to attain it through the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for sinners. This is the primacy of the promise over and against the law. The promise backs up way further than the giving of the law. This is Paul's argument. This is why you look to the promise, not to the law. This is why you make yourself a person of the promise, not a person of the law. This is why you put your reliance upon the promise, not upon the law, because the promise is first. The promise is primary. The promise is first. <clears throat> the inheritance comes not by keeping the law, not by doing the law, not by abiding in the law, not by living the law. The inheritance of all the promises of God, of all the blessings of God, of anything you could ever hope for or dream for that will put anything in this world to shame, all of this inheritance comes through the promise. The promise of God to unworthy sinners. It is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. No strings attached. No take-backs. This is yours, brothers and sisters, yours for the taking. But you do not receive it through keeping of the law, through being a law trier. You do not receive it through trying to be better, to make up for all of your sins in the past. You don't attain it by beating yourself up for what a failure you've become. You receive the promise of God and all the inheritance of God only by receiving the promise with hands of faith. Simply, I receive it. I delight in Jesus Christ and everything that He is for me. I embrace Jesus Christ and all the promises that have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Brothers and sisters, are you of the law? 
or are you of the promise? It's my prayer that you would be of the promise and so receive it in all the inheritance which God has for you in Christ. Let's pray together.